Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Megillah, daf Tetvav, page 15. So this is a pretty rich daf. There's a lot of different things here. I think Ann and I are just going to go back and forth pretty quickly. And I'm going to start with something on the top of Amad Aleph, which talks about this comparison between Malachi and Mordechai. So Malachi, as you know, is one of the uh, Treasar Nevi'im, right, of those 12 smaller minor prophets. Um, he's also part of the last three of Zechariah, Malachi, and Haggai, which are what we consider to be the Shibat Sion, right? They're not prophets of sort of the doom and gloom of the first nine. Rather, they really talk about how B'nai Israel are going to be allowed to come back and rebuild the temple. So I'm a Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman says, Malachi is a Mordechai. Malachi is Mordechai, right? And the Lamini crashed Shemo Malachi. Why was he called Malachi? because he was second to the king. So it's using the word melech in there, um, and, and that's the idea there. Um, but now we're going to bring a brisa that sort of objects to this. Baruch ben Neria usharia ben Masa, Daniel u'mordechai, bilshan v'chagai, zacharia u'malachi, kulan nitba'u, bishnat shtayim l'dar yavesh, t'yuvta. So this brisa talks about who all the different prophets were, at a particular period of time, and it lists Baruch, the son of Neria, um, and then uh, Syria uh, ben, uh, uh, ben, Masse, uh, ben, ben Messiah, uh, Daniel, and Mordechai, Bilshan, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, right? So all of these were supposed to be prophets together. But the idea here is that Mordechai and Malachi are, are, are separated out. They're considered to be two different people here. Um, and so the Gemara says to Yufta, right, they're not really sure. This is, you know, basically it's a refutation, right? It doesn't really make sense then to say that they are the same person. Now, why, how did Rav Nachman get to this? I think it's a little bit knowing that Malachi lived at the same time as Mordechai. So it was a little bit of like a play on words that he was being sensitive to. But yet we have this brisa that's not attributed to a particular person that basically is saying, you know, which Tanaitic literature, and therefore this Amoraic statement of Rav Nachman is essentially rejected. Um, then we go on Tanya, right? It's not in Rabbi Shudah Karcha. So Rabbi Karcha teaches the following. Malachi ze Ezra. Malachi is Ezra, right? Now, again, this is also the time period of the Shibat Zion. Malachi Shemo. Right. And the rabbi said that Malachi was his real name. It wasn't really Ezra. Uh, sorry, that Malachi's uh, that he's not Ezra, but that's really who he is. That's his real name. He, that's who he was. Amar of Nachman. Now, of Nachman comes again. So Rav Nachman says, right, we can reason, right, that maybe they really are the same person Malachi, because here's the following passage of Malachi. It's from chapter two, verse 11. Right, so it says Yehuda has dealt treacherously in the disgusting things that it did for Israel and in Jerusalem and for Judah. Uh, Yehuda profaned the sanctity of the Lord, which he loved, and married the daughter of a strange God. Right, so the implication here is, is that they somehow, you know, did something bad through marriage. Uman Afrish Nashim Goyot Ezra. And who was the one who removed the foreign women who were married to Jews? It was Ezra. So one of the things that Ezra does in the Shivatzion, and this takes place at the end of Ezra in, in, in Parak Yud in chapter 10, and here they quote a pasuk from here, Ben 
Right, and Shania, the son of uh, Yechiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and says, Ezra, we've broken our faith with God and have married foreign women. So one of the things that Ezra notices is that when he gets to Israel, many the people who were left there, um, they actually had married non-Jewish women. And he basically forces them to separate from those women um, as a way of sort of everybody rededicating themselves to the service of God, not just only building the temple itself. So because there is this theme in both Malachi and Ezra, Rav Nachman says this actually could be a proof. So here, Rav Nachman is not using necessarily a play on words, right, what the name Malachi could mean, but rather he's doing a play on the message, right, that if you have a similar message in two of the books of, of the Tanakh, then maybe this could actually be the same person. And the reason why they can also do this is there's not a lot of biographical information about Malachi in Sefer Malachi itself. And, um, um, and you know, so it goes on to say that. Um, what I just wanted um, you know, point out here also is that later on in this stuff, um, you know, they do the same thing again. And I know I'm skipping a little bit forward. Anne's going to go back to talk about something here, right? Where it says, Batikra Esther le Hatach, when Esther calls for Hatach, who's one of the king's chamberlains, right? And this is from Megillah Esther chapter four, verse five, Amarab Hatach Zadaniel. Hatach was actually Daniel. And the Lamini Krashimo Hatach, why was he called Hatach? because he was cut down from his greatness during Ahasuerus's reign, right? When you read Sefer Daniel, he actually is treated with a lot of respect uh, with the kings that he interacts with. And here, if we say, you know, he sort of is a chamberlain, maybe he was not as respected. Shmuel says that Chatach, right, is actually the opposite. And it was saying Daniel was called Chatach because all the, the affairs of the kingdom were decided by his word. So I, what I think we see that's interesting with both of these passages is, you know, and I would say this is even true today, this period of the Shivatzion, it's, it's chronology, the people who are involved is not always well understood. And, and those are sometimes the most, I think, least studied and least understood in Tanakh. And so it's interesting that sort of as a way to make some order from it, what we see Chazal doing here is sort of trying to, and, and they do this many times, this isn't a new thing for them to do, but here to create some order is they try to limit the number of people, right, by saying this person is that person and that person is this person um, as a way of sort of interconnecting all of those Farim together. And to remember that really, you know, Chagai, Zachariah, Malachi, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah really sort of need to be studied together because they're all sort of of this particular period of the Shivatzion or the beginning of the Shivatzion, whether it's the prophecies or the stories themselves. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second and acknowledge that if you read the Tanakh, like the plain sense of the text of the Bible is that all of these people are different people. Oh, obviously, right? yes. Sorry. I mean, this happens all the time, right? Like, yes. it's it's obviously not only here. We hear it with Shifra and Pua. Oh, my goodness, they were also Miriam and Yochavet. We see it in Sefer Breshit, meaning, you know, the Chazal like to put people they know better to be the main identity of somebody whom they know less by their name only, for example. Um, we've called it before and not us, meaning it's a, it's a phrase that's around anybody who studies I guess Midrash, conservation of biblical personalities, I find it particularly um, strong here 
you know, of the impulse of Chazal to put people together with like they're a whole navi, and here's a whole other navi, and they're going to put them together is a is a dramatic move on their part. I think. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, um, I'm going to jump down, not so far actually from where you've just left off. Um, there's a very small passage here, which is kind of you know going back to the Shevin Iviot to the seven prophetesses. We have a breita. There are four women who are now. The question is what yefefiot means, but it you know the plain sense of the translation. Let's call it you know exceptional beauty, right? They were so beautiful that yefot doesn't doesn't cut it. You have to say yefefiot And here's a list: Sarah, Vavigail, Rachav, Esther. So of the seven neviot. Some of those are here, but not all. And of these four, not even all of these were on that list. So it's interesting, again, when Chazal comes to make categories and say, here, we've got some women who are beautiful, ex exceptionally beautiful. Sarah, we know she's called Yifatoar. Avigail is called beautiful. Uh, actually, I'm not sure about that. Um, Rachav is here. Rachav in the story of Yoshua and Esther. And then, of course, the Gemara, it's interesting here. The Gemara says, if you think Esther wasn't so beautiful, that she was green or sallow, right? Meaning that she was, if that phrasing means not that she was beautiful, but in fact that she was not beautiful, that was a criticism of her. <coughs> then take Esther off the list and add in Vashti, which I think is like a, just to show how malleable this kind of list is by you know, by Chazal saying, well, we know that Vashti was beautiful. So if you think maybe maybe Esther doesn't belong there, that's okay. We can adjust the list. It's not it's not a sacrosanct. Um, I heard it said, and Yordana, you said that you've also heard it said, right, by um, Judy Sturman, who's a teacher of Tanakh par excellence. She had a long time ago, I don't know if she's still teaching this year, but she had a shear specifically on these four women. And she went through each one of them, the Esther version, not the Vashti version, to say, like, what makes these four unique because there are other people who are called Yafatoar who are described in the biblical text as beautiful and not all of these are described as beautiful so so what's really going on with this term Yafafiot and her and I've and I think Malkabina also has a sheer positing you know what's the unique um I don't mean unique I mean a common denominator through all these four that is less likely or less applicable to other women the the explanation that I remember, and I believe it's Judy Sturman's, and I really liked it, is that each one of these four women stood at the junction, let's say, between one time period or another time period, or one watershed event in Jewish history and the next, and they stood there and through their convictions and so on, were able to make dramatic change in Jewish history. If we think about Avigail and what we've already talked about with David, that she was able to kind of turn his hand from becoming murderous against Naval. Esther is obvious, right? Rachav in helping Yoshua, Sarah in her dealings with Avram. And of course, this is a much longer shear and it's much more involved. But I think that the idea then is that Yefefiot comes to mean something other than extraordinary physical beauty, but that there that we can look at these four to understand them to be um to have strength of character and resolve, let's say, in a way that makes them beautiful, whether or not they were also described as physically beautiful, um, which of course is always pleasing to us because, I don't know, it's a little squirmy to think that they that these, that these they were only on this list because they had exceptional beauty and the text doesn't even call all of them beautiful. That's difficult. But if we can find some other common denominator that makes them all exceptional in the same kind of way, 
then that seems to be a stronger grouping, I think. And um, and I like it. I, I mean, I think these four are particularly strong women in in um, pressed into, you know, a difficult circumstance where they had to stick their neck out and stand up for something. And they didn't, you know, go bashing heads or something. They do it with even we could say, you know, in a in a feminine way. Right. Meaning in a in a stereotypically discreet or refined kind of manner. Um, and I think that that makes for a powerful, a powerful grouping. Okay, now, Yodin, do you have anything to comment on there before I go on? No, I, I think it's a good insight about sort of why they're grouped together. Um, but it's just, you know, interesting always like the Gemara does it, but doesn't really explain it. And then we're sort of left to ourselves to sort of, you know, think about it, uh, think about it. Like it's not clear in the Gemara why that is. But anyhow, go on to the next. Okay, so now if we jump down, now I'm really jumping down quite a bit uh, towards quite a far way into Amabet. And there's a description here, right, that's talking about kind of in the middle of the Gemara here. It's talking about um, Esther, and she's standing in the inner courtyard of the house, and the question of what she's doing there, all of which is um, very important, but incidental to the part I want to talk about. But basically here we see it says, Vahi Chirot. Hamelech at Esther Hamalka, right? The king saw that Esther, the queen, was standing in the court, right? And he, he, you know, um, he calls on her basically, right? He gives her the scepter to be able to speak, or that it will be her turn. So Rabbi Yochanan says that there were three malachim, there were three angels who joined her at that time. One held up her neck. So that she could stand straight and tall. One that put a string or a cord of grace, of divine grace around her, so that all of her charm and beauty could be seen, or or to give her charm and beauty, I guess, if she didn't have it. And one that stretches the king's scepter, meaning that's you know enables her to take a hold of it. So then the Gemara says, meaning how far. How far was this king's scepter going to be stretched? That suggests now that the pole itself is what's it's what's being stretched. So the Gemara says the scepter itself was two cubits long. Remember, a cubit is a you know about the length of a grown person's forearm, and then the stretching of it made it twelve cubits long. So that's from two to twelve is quite a good long distance. And some say it went, made it 16. Some say they made it 24. Meaning how far away is Esther from the point where the king is reaching out the scepter that is going to reach to her. And then we've got a claim here that there's a, in a breita that he made it 60 cubits long, which is obviously much longer than any human endeavor for um, extending a scepter. And so too we find this same extension of an ama in the in the story of Batparo, which Yardena I would like to point out is a very nice parsha connection, right? Meaning from well, I guess from this week's this past week's parsha, right? Yes, yes. Um, I just read it this like two days ago, so yes. <laughs> so it counts, right? For our yes, for our nation star, it counts still. <laughs> um, so what happens there, right? And this is a very famous midrash that the daughter of Paro comes, you know, to bathe at the, in the Nile, and she 
the pshat seems to be she sends her maidservant, the word for which is ama, to go see what's going on in the in the bulrushes over there, namely the the basket that has baby Moshe. But the midrash says she that Batparo herself stretched out her ama, meaning the forearm, and it stretched and it stretched and it stretched to be able to reach the basket of the baby Moshe all by herself. Now. In the analysis, in the exegesis of this, in the in Sefer Shmot, in the story of Bat Paro, it really all hinges on a dagesh in the word ama, meaning is ama the word that means the handmaiden, or is ama the word that means the forearm? And because either way, it still says she she sent forth her ama. Um, but so then, the I think the idea here is that if if we take from that story of Bat Paro and the extension of the ama, meaning the forearm there and we apply it here to the idea that he extends the scepter right i mean that's what he's doing then then how far is he going to extend it and then we've got this kind of supernatural magical or divine intervention to make it be all that more um dramatic and also relevant that the scepter is going to reach all the way to her even though he wasn't really reaching all the way to her so then the gemara just goes on we also find this with the teeth of the wicked. You've broken the teeth of the wicked. Don't say you broke, but you have enlarged, in which case the word sharvit of the scepter also has this kind of connotation, right? This idea that it was extended and enlarged, um, which I believe is all about giving greater credence to Esther, meaning to give her the honor of the king's favor at a time when maybe she wouldn't have had it otherwise, but she has come, she has dared to come before him, you know, when she wasn't called, and let's make sure, meaning, let's say Chazal are basically telling us, let's make sure everybody understands that he did not in any way begrudge her appearance there at all. He was never going to be angry with her or something like that, because look how generous he is with his shervit, with his scepter that grows and reaches. And finally here, the, the Gemara says, it stretched 200 amot, meaning to reach her, which is a very, very far distance in terms of even in a large throne room. Um, but the, I would say the miraculous there or the, the divine element or the supernatural element is there, I think, to remind us, you know, Esther's there doing God's will. Right, quite literally, and and um, Achashverosh isn't faulting her in any way. Right, and I, you know, again, I think these are the types of things that they're sort of playing around with the text itself, because these were unusual things to sort of have happen, and so therefore they put sort of a miraculous element into it. Um, I'm going to close out this episode with just one more thing. Um, the Gemara then a little bit later down quotes this pasuk by which is Mikilat Esther chapter five, verse four. Um, and the question basically is, right, Tanu Rabbanan, Esther Shizmina et Haman. Why did Esther invite Haman? And it's a great question about the story that you may not think about until you read this passage. In other words, why doesn't she just get the king alone and tell him what's going on? Why does she need Haman there also? And so now they present a few different reasons. Rabbi Eliezer, Amer, Prachim, Tamnalo, Shanamar, Yehi, Shulchanam, right? Rabbi Eliezer says, she basically sort of, hid a snare for him and they quote a pasuk in Tehillim to, to prove this but the idea basically that if she had him in his sight at this banquet at this mishtash she would be able to sort of you know 
get him to make a mistake or trip him up somehow. Rabbi Yeshua Merami Beit Rabbi Yeshua says she learned this from her father's house, Shenamar, and here they quote a pasuk from Mishlei Imra Eiv Sunecha Hachlinu Lechem, right? That you should, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed them bread. Rabbi Meir Mer Kadeshalo Yutol Eitzavimrod, right? She invited him so that basically this is the idea, right? Like keep your enemies close is basically what he's saying, so that he couldn't take counsel and rebel against Achashverosh when he discovered the king was angry with him. Like in other words, if she kept him there all the time. He wouldn't have time to plot something. So I love Rabbi Mayer's opinion. Rabbi Yehuda, he did it so that she would never, he would never find out that she was a Jew. Again, a little bit the idea of like sort of keeping her enemies close. Rabbi Yisrael, right? So he says it so that the Jewish people would never be able to say, we have, one of us is in the Beit HaMelech. Right. And, you know, and they would sort of neglect their prayers for divine mercy. Right. So in other words, the idea is, is that if they see that. Uh, so Rabbi Nechemius, I think, is a little bit interesting. Right. But the idea is she didn't want them to become complacent. So if everyone knew that this plan was happening with Haman, they would eventually they would start to pray. Rabbi Yossi Omer, she did this so that Haman would always sort of be there for her at any time, that she would always, she could continue to find an opportunity where she could sort of trap him or out him to the king. Right, that maybe Hashem will notice, right, that everybody's supporting Haman and then, you know, basically he'll do a miracle for us. Right, right? what does she say? Esther says herself, I'll act kindly towards him Right. And then what will happen? He'll then uh, the king will assume we're having an affair and then he'll kill me and him. Right. Rabbi Gamliel says Achatrich was a was a fickle king. Right. And therefore, uh, you know, Esther basically hoped that the, the more that he saw Haman, eventually he would change his mind about Haman. Um, I'm a, um, a Rabbi Gamliel. Right. Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel also says uh, right? Rabbi Gamliel says, we still need these words of Rabbi Eliezer Hamodi to understand why Esther invited Haman to his banquet. And what was this? Right? She made the king jealous of him and she made the other ministers jealous of him. In other words, everybody was going to be jealous of Haman that he was sort of invited to this banquet and that would lead to his downfall. So it's interesting to me that they give so many opinions here because many of them sort of do overlap a little bit. Um, but I also like the idea that sort of everyone is sort of trying to figure out like, what's the political angle here? Like, what is it that made them, you know, choose to do this? Um, and sort of really to understand like what the, um, you know, you know, what's the meaning behind her actions? Like this clearly had to be a little bit thought out and was done with intent. passage. I think it is a lovely passage. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Come rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Oh, come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of these various passages over the course of this DAF. Thank you to Rebani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. So I think it's interesting how there's a whole piece of the Megillah that's about, you know, that everything that starts out one way 
switches and, you know, the fate of everybody is reversed. Everything's reversed in the Megillah. And this elaboration of the story, you know, creating this whole backstory, um, you know, I think is in a way sort of really drawing out the Vinaha Fohu, right? It's really trying to show us every single piece like that, you know, Mordechai goes from sackcloth to being dressed in finery. Uh, Haman goes from, you know, being, um, uh, you know, in power to then, you know, he's sort of, you know, disgusting, you know, full of, uh, you know, basically garbage at the end. Um, but I think that last point that you also made, you know, that sort of the story really isn't over from there. You know, I wonder if part of the reason why the Megillah wants to emphasize that is this still is early on and we still have a lot of other action. This is only Perig Vav. Um, there's still, you know, four more Prakdom of the Megillah to get to. And I think in a way the Megillah wants to emphasize, yes, we're starting to see the beginnings, but it, it, it wasn't still promised yet. And I think that's why it sort of ends with this idea that Mordechai is now again in sackcloth, you know, still waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to move on to another piece of the Gemara here, which is the Gemara basically digresses um, and gets into a whole discussion about Yosef and his brothers, right? It basically wants to talk about this whole episode uh, with Yosef and his brothers. Um, and um, it, it it starts off by basically, uh, you know, going through a um, pasuk that a little bit relates to the Megillah uh, itself, right? So it's quoting a pasuk in Bereshi chapter 45, verse 22. It says, Right? That he gave each man changes of clothing, um, but to Binyamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothing. And so I think here what's relating is it's the idea of somebody getting a new, new clothing and things like that. Um, and then the Gemara is going to spend a pretty significant amount of time uh, sort of going through pieces of the story about Yosef um, and Binyamin. And I think this is interesting, and many of our co-learners may know this, but I think it's worth talking about a little bit, that there's a lot of parallels between the stories of Esther and Yosef. Um, and, you know, this isn't something new. The Mepharshim talk about it. Um, you know, they're both stories that take place in exile. Both Yosef and Esther are people who come into positions of power uh, with a foreign ruler in exile. Both of them come from Rachel, right? They're, you know, Yosef is a direct child of Rachel. Esther is from the tribe of Binyamin. Um, there's also not a lot of seeing Hashem in this story, right? In Megillat Esther, we actually don't see Yad Hashem at all, right? We don't see Hashem's name even mentioned. Um, and in the story of Yosef, interestingly, which takes place over about 13 Prakim, God only speaks to somebody uh, one one time, um, ex, you know, sort of explicitly. We don't, unlike the stories of Abraham and, ya- and Yitzchak and Yaakov, where there's a lot of conversing between God and, the, and those Avot, we don't see that in the story of Yosef. And also both of them sort of end in a way, like, is it really a happy ending? Like at the end of the day with Yosef, you know, the children of Yaakov still end up in Egypt. And with, um, and with Esther, you know, what, what's, what's the end of the story? I mean, they're still sort of being ruled by a foreign, uh, by a foreign leader. Um, and, you know, there's also, um, many of the Mepharshim. And again, this is something that people can look up on their own. I don't have time to go through all this. There's a lot of textual, uh, parallels between the two. Like we see many of the same, um, uh, Sukim, right? Like Yaakov, 
tears his clothing when he hears that Yosef was, you know, supposedly killed. Mordechai tears his clothing. Yosef is described as Yifat Toar v'Yifat Mara, and Esther is described as Yifat Toar and Yifat Mara. Um, so I'm not going to go through all, but there's many, many parallels uh, between the languages of the story themselves as well. Um, and uh, even with Yosef and Esther, you know, they're both described as sort of having this Yifat Mara, Yifat Toar and Yifat Mara. They're both, they both have different names, right? Yosef is given the name Safat Paneach, and Esther is also known as Hadassah. Um, and also there's a whole thing of sort of like hiding your identity, um, right? And so here, the piece of the story that uh, the Gemara is going to want to talk about is when he sort of finally reveals himself to his brothers. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting that the Gemara sort of takes this little uh, break to talk about the story of Yosef. But it really makes sense if you know sort of that there's a lot of parallels between the stories of Yosef and uh, Esther. So the question here that they're starting with is, and it's a great question, right? Is it possible that the, th- the, the, the thing from which the righteous man had suffered, right? What was it that Yaakov showed favoritism to Yosef, right? He gave him the ketonet hapasim, the, the colored coat, you know, and he does the same thing now, Yosef, to Binyamin, right? Which is fascinating. Now, we can ask that question also about Yaakov, right? Yitzchak favored Esav, um, and then Yaakov goes ahead and he favors one of his children, right? And so basically the Gemara says, right? Right? So is it possible that Yosef would do the same thing, like that he would be stumbled by this is literally what it means? Right, so this is a teaching here that says, "Bishfil mishkal sheisa ali meilat meilat shosif Yaakov liYosef misharachav nitgalgel hadavar v'yadu avotenu mitzrayim." Right, this teaching explicitly says, because of the two sill of fine wool that Yaakov gave Yosef, right, and added to Yosef beyond what he gave the rest of the brothers. This is how this is what started this whole story and how we ended up in Egypt. In other words, it's a direct correlation between this favoritism. So the question is, why would Yosef do the same thing? And so it says, no, he wasn't showing favoritism. Rather, he had this sort of he had this intuition that a descendant was going to be destined to, to come from him, from Yosef, who would go out in front of the king wearing five royal garments. Um, and this is what it's talking about, quoting now this Pasuk Mordechai in Esther in chapter 8, verse 15, which lists five garments that he wore. So it's sort of, he creates with Binyamin what's eventually going to happen with the descendant of Binyamin, with Mordechai, uh, by, by letting him have these five um, garments. And again, I think this is a way of Chazal directly linking the stories of Yosef to the story of Esther. And then it wants to go on and continue with other pieces of the story. Right, it says he fell on the uh, neck of Binyamin. This is a pasuk from Barishi, chapter 45, verse 14, except that word savare is in plural. How many necks did he actually have? Right, so here the Gemara famously answers, Amar Rebbe Elazar, um, you know, Bacha al Mikdashim He was crying about the two Batei Mikdash, right? Remember the Beit HaMikdash 
was partially in Yehuda and partially in Binyamin. Um, and so that's what he was crying about, that they were going to be destroyed, right? Ubinyamin al Tzavarav, and Binyamin cried on his neck, Bachal Mishkan Shilo. Binyamin was crying that the Mishkan in Shilo, right, which was in um which was in the territory of Yosef, right? And that was going to be destroyed. And so again, I think part of what they're doing here uh, with this, you know, the, the previous piece about Mordechai and the clothing and here about the Bate Mikdash is they're trying to set up this story as sort of being, uh, all of this is, is sort of foretelling the future of Jewish history, right? None of this is actually what happened in the present of that story. But all of this had in mind what was going to happen in the future as well. And then it goes on, right? He finally, you know, it says, and behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother, Benjamin. So the meaning of this is, is just like, I don't resent my brother, Benjamin, who had nothing to do with my being sold. I also don't hold any resentment towards you. Right, right, because it says this this part of the pasuk, the continuation of this pasuk from chapter forty five, verse twelve. Right, that it is my mouth, kifi, that speaks to you. Right, kifi, canely be, just as my mouth speaks, my heart speaks. Meaning, what I'm actually saying is actually true. And then it goes on to say, right, and his father he sent after ten donkeys with good things from Egypt. This is the gift that Yosef sends. Yaakov, right? My mituv mitzrayim. So they ask, what are the good things of Egypt? I'm a Rabbi Binyamin bar Yefet. And I also think it's interesting that so far we've had a lot of uh, Torah here from Rabbi Binyamin bin Yefet. That Binyamin's not a common name that we see. And the fact that this story involves Binyamin. But anyhow, I'm a Rabbi Elazar. Shlach lo yayin shadat no chahema. Right? He sent him wine because age wine, because the elderly like that. Then it goes on, right after Yaakov dies, it says that the brothers, this is from Bereshi chapter 50, verse 18, the brothers went and fell down before him. In other words, the brothers get nervous. Now that Yaakov's dead, Yosuke can exact revenge. Right? So this explains the, the, the sort of the saying, when a fox is in its hour, bound down to it. In other words, there was something, it's implying there was something tricky or clever about Yosef. And now, you know, if the fox was sort of appointed to really be in charge, you have to submit yourself to it, to the fox. And so then the Gemara would say, Tala, right? Are you really going to call Yosef a, a, a fox? Um, right? Right? What was he inferior to his brothers? Right? In other words, why would you call him a fox? I don't like that they're calling him a fox. Ella, ki itmar hachi itme. Right. Rather, if such a statement was stated, it was stated in this way. Right. It says Israel bowed himself upon the head of the bed that Yaakov bowed. And this is a pasuk from Bereshi, chapter 47, verse 31. Right. When a fox is in its hour, bow down to it. In other words, the fact that the brothers bowed to Yosef. Yeah, the brothers were inferior to Yosef. So it makes sense that they did. But what they're saying is the better example is, is that Yaakov bowed down to his son. And so they said that they're trying to say that that's really where the quote was. And finally, the last piece here that they go through, right? Yosef comforts them and spoke to their heart. This is Bereshi chapter 50, verse 
Amar Rabbi Binyamin Bar Yefet, Amar Rabbi Eleazar. Again, we have Rabbi Binyamin. Right, this teaches that he spoke to them with words that are that were going to be accepted by the heart. In other words, he tried to make them not be scared of him. Uma asara neirot lo And what does he say? If ten lights could not put out one light, in other words, the ten brothers weren't successful in actually killing him. How could one light actually kill the ten lights? Now, is that actually comforting? I don't know. Um, but a very, very interesting sort of tangent that the Gemara gets on. It's not specifically addressing the parallels between the story of Yosef and the story of Esther, but I think that the tangent is much better understood once we understand that there are many, many parallels between the two stories. And I think here, similarly to what was you know described uh, uh, on the other part of the daf, on Amad Aleph, of Haman and Mordechai, they're trying to give fill in a lot of the backstory here. Um, and I wonder if this is also because in both of these stories, there's no explicit, you know, element of Hashem's driving the action. And really, you're dealing with sort of people interacting with each other. And so therefore, we don't really ever know what's in a person's heart. And so both in the story of Esther, and both in the story of Yosef, some of the backstory, the motivations need to sort of be explained in a little bit more of an elaborate way because where the story is going is not explicit because we don't have sort of like God coming and talking to somebody and saying like, this is what's going to happen. Like we do in many other stories where God explicitly comes and says, you will be saved. This is all is going to turn out okay. And we don't have that in these stories. And so therefore I think Chazal create these very elaborate backstories to sort of fill in many of these pieces. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink is review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.